Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is November the 3rd, 2021. Um, it's a Wednesday, as so often in November on Wednesdays, we are reeling from election results. The Democrats got a pummeling, according to the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. Uh, the Republicans are on the rise. And what are we to make of it? Is it politics in a post-Trump world back to normal, where everything has re reverted back to the pre-Trump age of a normal right-left divisions. It's the kind of subject that would normally get discussed on the iconic hardball show with Chris Matthews, but Chris doesn't do hardball anymore. He has, however, a new book out, uh, This Country. Uh, I'm thrilled uh, that Chris has not only got a, this new book out, This Country, My Life in Politics and History, but Chris is joining us from Washington, D.C. today. Uh, technology tried to interfere, Chris, but it didn't succeed. We're on air. Uh, so, Chris Matthews, welcome to Keen On. Uh, Chris, before we talk about the book itself, are we back to normal in America in a post-Trump age in this uh, election uh, in, in, on a Wednesday when the Democrats uh, got a pummeling after the voters rejected the, uh, the current president. It seems very normal, eerily normal. Well, you know, midterm elections, which are coming up next year, have historically been a disaster for the Democrats. Uh, uh, Clinton lost uh, 54 uh, in uh, 2094. And then again, Barack Obama in 2010 lost 60 some seats. They lost an average of seven Senate seats. So I think we're looking toward uh, a historic norm. Uh, Winston Churchill once said, never defend the, never defend the government in a by-election. And we just saw some by-elections. Uh, odd numbered years, uh, not part of a big election cycle, but uh, the voters reacted to, to I believe, to, uh, to Biden. They see Biden as perhaps too old, uh, they see him as having completely screwed up the departure from Afghanistan. I agree completely with what Peggy Noonan wrote in her column last, uh, last Saturday, which is before Afghanistan, the question around the, the political chatting world is, what's, who's calling the shots in the White House? Because they were some, it was so smooth. There was something going on. There must've been Ron Klain or somebody who had some brains in the White House and was running the trains on time. And then after Afghanistan, the question was, what the hell's going on? Is there anybody there? And I think Afghanistan, compared to how Jack Kennedy handled the Bay of Pigs, he came out and said, I'm the officer in charge. I'm the one responsible. I blew it. And basically, the country said, great, somebody's taking responsibility here. The response to Afghanistan was nothing but a blur. No explanation about how we planned to leave. Who was guarding the airport? What did, he, what did we think was going to be happening eventually when, we, when the government fell? We were taking an estimate of how long a uh, decent interval would take. Well, in Vietnam, it took uh, three or four years. Over there, it took about 15 minutes. So uh, but Biden didn't seem to be in charge. He kept Jake Selvin on, his national security advisor, who was the officer in responsible. And he, he put him in charge of the evacuation as if he's somehow innocent. You know, I think Peggy's right about that. The, I think the atmosphere, the light motif, the whole atmosphere in politics changed with Afghanistan because there was no 
explanation. And in the same way, locally, um, Terry McAuliffe never explained his position on the American experience with slavery and Jim Crow. Okay, here's your chance. This is what Barack Obama loved. Attack me so I can explain who I am. And he always succeeded. McCulloch didn't explain. He so said, much to discuss, Chris. In, in your book, you cool race the San Andreas Fault, right. um, which, of course, in geological terms, can never change. Do you think Black Lives Matter has changed anything? Uh, there's a lot about race in your book. You, 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 you're, you're generally an optimist, but my sense is you remain um, cautiously, op uh, cautiously pessimistic on this San Andreas fault of American culture, politics, society? Well, there's even, it's hard to say there's something broader in our country at large than race, but in this case, there is. When I was growing up, my parents, middle-class parents, very sensitive to what I was learning in school. Where'd you learn that? My father's favorite question was, where'd you learn that? You know, <laughs> who's teaching you this stuff? My mom thought Brown University, where our son eventually went, was full of communist professors. And well, it is, isn't it? I think that reasonable question, how left are they? <laughs> but back, this is early in the Cold War, where it was a, a Joseph Stalin question more than it was a, a question about Putin. Um, I do think it's about education. And I do think if you look at the history of tumult in the South, it really began in 61 with the uh, court decision on prayer in school. That cut so much to the bone of Southerners. That, let's think that almost all Southerners are Baptists. They all rely on public school. They don't go to, as you say in England, public school, private school. They don't go to parochial school, Catholic school. They go to public school and they rely on it as their home base where the King James Version of the Bible is taught in class every day, where it's read by students. The court said, you can't do that anymore. It's not your home base anymore. We don't care if you're all Baptist. We don't care if you're all Christian. No more Bible in the classroom. Then, it, then desegregation came along. You can't just consort with white people. You got to consort with other people. You have to date with each other. It's all coming. Miscegenation, it's all coming. And now this thing about uh, teaching what they believe is communist uh, thought or Marxist thought, somebody called it the other day, teaching uh, our guilt, our shame as white people. Well, they don't want to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that. We lost 600,000 people in the Civil War. Half of them were fighting against slavery. You know, the Battle of the Republic. We, this is a religious cause. As Lincoln said, what was taken by the whip was paid for by the sword. The reparation for slavery for the antebellum South was the Civil War. And people say, oh, that's a, un, that's a sword that won't end. Well, it is at the end. We should have ended that part of it. We can argue about Jim Crow forever. But, you know, I think arguing about slavery and who's responsible for it is so retro and useless because almost all Americans I know are immigrants. They all got here, well, the potato family, or they got here since then. They have no responsibility for what happened in the NFL South. It, I know it's an argument that you can't make so easily on television, but my God, telling people in Virginia that they, have, they should be ashamed of their past is not a political winner. It just isn't. We ought to understand, when we were kids, we went to Mount Vernon and we saw the slave quarters. We thought they were quaint as kids from the North. Interesting, there's slaves here. Um, you know, just a second, it's my wife, I have to take that one. But Kathy, Kathy, I'll call you right back, okay? Um, the, um, so we know about slavery, and I think the idea of throwing it back in a way, the thing is there haven't been teaching, they haven't been teaching critical race theory in school. 
but it's also for the whole woke thing, I think. Some people said that today. So it sounds to me, Chris, and, and you sort of touch on this a little bit at the end, you're, you're not a big fan of this culture, this cancel culture movement. Do you I know, feel I accepted, I accepted my case. Where I yeah, I mean, do you feel that you were kind of canceled? Because I feel like I'm back on hardball now with Chris Matthews, but he's no, not no, on TV actually, anymore. Actually, I'm pretty clear, as you read in the book, I made I very clear that I complimented someone in the makeup room, in the makeup chair. I looked in the mirror and I saw somebody, I made a complimentary remark or set of remarks. And I've always accepted that from day one, I did that. I broke the rules. There's never conflict with me. I've never said I was the good guy in that situation, never. I said I broke the rules. Why the book, Chris? You've written a lot of books, uh, a lot of books about American politics. Why this book about your own life? What was the point? Because I think I've been very fortunate to have had a chance, especially uh, as, a, as a journalist uh, since 1987, to have been in these places. It was almost like, uh, I don't know, who was that guy in the movies? Woody Allen's character. The Zelig. Guy. Yeah, I thought of Zelig when I was reading the book. He always pops up and you always pop up, don't you? And I think, of why am I at the Berlin Wall? Why am I in South Africa during the first elections with Bishop? Well, it's like Forrest Gump as well. You're somehow a, a mix. You're a, you're an amalgamation of, of Woody Allen, Zelig and Forrest Gump. Yeah, and I was lucky to be in all these places after having a political career. And I thought, wow, I better write this down. I was very proud of being in the Berlin Wall, for example, and having... A young person said, when I asked him, what's freedom mean? Buses Freiheit, what's freedom mean to you? And he said, talking to you. And I, those moments shouldn't be lost, even if they're my own loss. They're my own moments. I, I was very fortunate. The Peace Corps, I wrote 10 chapters for this book on African life, my life in Africa for two yeah, years. Yeah, you started in Swaziland. If there's a young Chris Matthews out there, Chris, are there opportunities for Chris Matthews-like lives, guys, born into the working class, who made something of themselves, became um, journalists, celebrities. I was a cop I was started off as a cop. I was a Capitol policeman. It's a patronage job. Until I, I, I asked for a legislative assistant job, the, the top ed guy to the senator from Utah, the last liberal senator, Frank Moss, said, no, but I'll give you a cop job for one. I did that for a while. They said, OK, it's time for my legislative assistant job. He said, OK. But I knocked on 200 doors, Andrew, to get that job. I mean, it was knocking on door after well, door. I, there are kids out there willing to knock on doors. There's a lot of stuff in the book, and you've, you've, you've talked and written a lot about this, about how much faith you have in the young generation. You're passing the mantle. But are there the same opportunities for this young generation? Are they banging their heads against the wall now? I got two sons trying to make it in the movie business. What do you think? It's tough. It's, you gotta well, it's always been tough in the movie business. Yeah, but, and I think getting a job in politics, a lot of people, my mom, I wrote in the book, said, you're, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Well, I did, it's who you get to know. That's what life is. It's campaigning. Every time you get to meet somebody, it broadens your network of people that you can knock on the door with. You know, there's always somebody on the other side of the door you got to get to. The doors don't open automatically. And you have to get to that person and find some common interest to make a case. When I first looked on the hill to get a job coming back from Africa, I didn't have any money. I didn't know anybody. So I thought I'd go to all the Irish Catholics from the Northeast thinking it was cool that I was in Jack Kennedy's Peace Corps or I spent the Holy Cross at Jesuit College in New England. Um, I ended up getting a job with a Mormon kid who, uh, was work, who had worked for Bobby Kennedy and worked more recently for Ted Kennedy. He had been his Rocky Mountain uh, coordinator and a Mormon kid, true believer. And uh, he loved the fact I was going to school in Massachusetts. I'd been in the Peace Corps. He loved, I think he loved the fact that I was an Irish Catholic. So you got to keep knocking on doors and hope somebody's going to like you because there are a lot of people that won't like you. They just won't be interested in you. That's more common. They're just not interested.
Speaking of Bobby Kennedy, you wrote a wonderful book about him. He keeps on coming up, Chris, in this show. Lots of people looking back at Kennedy, deeply nostalgic. We've had shows about Kennedy's critique of GDP, his focus on the quality of life. Um, Love environmentalists, love him. Um, Can we get another Bobby Kennedy? Well, the problem is, Andrew, you know we're in political slots now. And if you're in a slot and you try to worm your way out of it a bit, people don't like you. Uh, are you a liberal? Then why do you care about law enforcement? If you're a liberal, why don't you give a break to with the Castro brothers? Why do you hate uh, communism? I mean, I think more people are more hybrid about their politics than the, than the media admits. Uh, Bobby Kennedy was a hybrid. He was a tough law and order guy, but he was good for the guy in trouble, the woman in trouble. He believed in the public space, though, didn't he, Bobby Kennedy? He believed in the idea of a place where everyone could talk. Um, He wasn't as nostalgic as some of the other liberals wanting to go back to the great society. There's there's something innovative about him. I think Jack and Bobby Kennedy were very suspicious of professional liberals. They thought they were phonies. And they always recited the same hymns over and over again, you know. And... uh, the same stuff. And they go, wait a minute, life's more complicated than that. People are killers out there, there's murderers out there, there's dangerous people. You can't just be sympathetic generally. You got to look out for the people that deserve a break, deserve a break. And I I think that's what's great about it. But he had the cojones to go into a tough neighborhood, the Broadway neighborhood of Indianapolis, the night Dr. King was killed, to tell those people, African-American people, blacks, that their hero of all history has been shot down by a white guy. And this is after uh, all that's been happening in that era of the 60s. And tell them to their faces, I guess what, I'm a white guy here. My brother was killed by a white guy. I thought that was the crudest thing I ever heard. My brother was killed by a white guy. But when you think about it, it was his very being crying out to show that he feels what they feel right now. To try to express soul to soul. We're humans together. And we have enemies together. All of us. And they're the bad people. And, and boy, you talk about a crying out from the soul. And I got the old tape from NBC, and I could hear him saying to his host that day, that evening, in the dark, uh, he said, have they been told yet about Dr. King or Martin King? And, they, and the guy introduced to him said, they haven't been told yet. And there was no, of course, social media in those days. There's no way to get the news lickety split. He told them. And I'll tell you, the cops wouldn't go in with them. They wouldn't give him an escort. That is ballsy. That is the kind of thing you want in a politician step out of the limelight, out of your comfort zone, and to be willing, like my hero Churchill, to just say, okay, nobody in my party likes me. I got an enemy across the water who wants trying to kill me and everybody else, and I've got to fight this fight for myself. Okay, I'll do it. You talk about Churchill as your hero. You write about him in your book. There's a revisionist history now out about Churchill by Jeffrey Wheatcroft. I don't know if you've seen it. I know. Um, They're going after Churchill too. When I say they, good luck. I'm good critical luck. theorists. I'm gonna, I'm what do you make of that? Well, I'm going to write another church. I'm writing a church. I'm trying to get Simon and Schuster to agree with it. I'll know next week. I'm they may not the agree. Answer. They may not want it. They may not have the, as you say, the cajones to, uh, to, to, to print another book about Churchill in defense of him. Well, let me just tell you what I want to write about is why people like I, like me, love him. And the reason we like him is this guy's five foot seven. He's losing his hair. He has a lisp. He has no physical great, except he taught himself how to speak by rehearsal, you know, everything. 
uh, practicing and to deal with his speech impediment, he, uh, he was his own man. And when he was with the Liberal Party, they went too far left, he got out of there. And when, uh, uh, when, it, when and before that, when the Tory party went against free trade, which he believed in, he got out of there too. He said, I'm not really a party man. In fact, somebody wrote that about me. I like the fact he was an independent. I fact that I like the fact that uh, when everything was going to hell in the 30s, he could see it going to hell if everybody else wasn't seeing it. And then he went in there and said, you know what, to the outer cabinet, we're gonna fight. Because this guy, I thought about negotiating with that man. I think it's one of his best phrases. I thought about negotiating with that man. And he had seen Hitler. You don't negotiate with the guy. He grabs you and he kills you. And if you agree to that, you're the French. You know, that's where the French ended up. Chris, and you I, wrote a book, um, perhaps your like best-selling them. book, A Hardball, How Politics is Played, about politics as a kind of game. Um, contest. As a contest. Uh, your reference to Churchill and Hitler suggests that it wasn't a game. It wasn't a contest. It no, was the war. The stakes are enormous. The stakes are enormous. But it, but it was contest. war. There was nothing playful about it. Uh, and I'm well, curious. You just want to argue, fine. But I'm going to tell you, contest doesn't mean playful. So it's a game to the death. Do you feel, and I, and I was thinking about this reading the book, you're one of the people who spent a lot of time with Donald Trump. I'm not saying you legitimized him or normalized him, but you had him on your show a lot and he was on a lot of shows. Do you think the media made a mistake normalizing him, imagining that politics was a kind of game and that Trump was just an ordinary player? I think uh, most people uh, would laugh at his jokes. I think he was funny, he was insidious, he was cruel, like the schoolyard bully and the way he took down the Republican opponents he had, making fun of you know, Jeb Bush, making fun of Marco Rubio, and making fun of the water, throwing the water around the room. And uh, the, the, the cartoonish way he dealt with Hillary, Hillary Clinton, he, uh, it was something awfully funny about that. And we, I am guilty of that. I laughed. Did you I fear him though? Did you have any, any sense that he was beyond a joke? I never thought he'd win. I never thought, I didn't thought he'd win until I was shocked that night. I thought that he, I never thought he was that evil. I never thought he was evil. And we learned on January 6th, he was evil. Probably learned before that he was evil. He didn't care about the constitution of the United States. He didn't care about the country. He was willing to do anything in his own personal interest. And then the things you hear about, there's a great, wonderful line in an old cult film, uh, uh, Pretty Poison, with Tony, Tony Perkins and Tuesday Weld. And he has this line in it. He said, people only truly, he said, I've learned that people only truly believe what they discover for themselves. You know, you hear about a guy being a bad guy. Yeah. And then you have to deal with him and you go, oh my God, I'm meeting you now, buddy. He, he never paid his bills. Then you realize he didn't pay his bills to the country. He took an oath. He didn't follow it. Uh, we all discovered that he was as bad as the people said about him. And I always ask the people, how come people lent the guy money all those years? Why did Trump have all this credit? when he never pays any bills, even little people he screwed, little tenders, you know, little vendors, screw them. And I said, why? Because they don't have the money to fight with him in court because he'll be so litigious. He'll just spend your money for you. He'll spend it all. And he'll just keep denying it to pay his bills. So I think it's not fair. Well, it's fair, of course, because we're all talkers, but I didn't think he was that bad. I thought he'd beat up a few Republicans and then Hillary would beat him. So what, no harm done. 
That you was talk my... about yourself in the book. Uh, you, you like to think of yourself and you're portrayed a, a, the Yiddish word tumla. Uh, perhaps well, you might define that, what that means. Well, tumbler is, uh, if you think of these guys like Pinky Lee and Soupy Sales, these guys all had show business stage names. Uh, Milton Burr, all the they were up in the Catskill Mountains where a lot of Jewish people would go in the summer. Uh, it was like, like Marjorie Morningstar or Dirty Dancing. That's the whole culture of those places. And they would have a, a comedian who would come in on rainy days and, and keep the ladies happy where they couldn't go out and get suntan or whatever, or walk around or play sports. He'd come in and shake it up. It was like Zero Mostel was a great tumbler, Zero Mostel. And uh, in the movie, uh, The Front, the Woody Allen movie, The Front, he yeah. played these guys who was blacklisted. And uh, Herschel Bronstein was his name. Hecky Brown was his, show, his stage name. He was a great character. Uh, he committed suicide in the movie because he'd been blacklisted. But he would go into this place and he'd just have them rocking and rolling. These women would be laughing. And then, of course, the, uh, the owner of the place would stiff him. <laughs> he wouldn't give half the money he promised him and to stiff him afterwards. That's why a show business guy I knew, Red Skelton. This is the story I heard. You'll love this. Red Skelton used to do his TV show every week. He would come and ask for the money, the cash from the network. Because he didn't trust these guys, you know? And he would bring a gun with him every week. I talked to some historian out there at Television City. And so the old show business thing was you would get screwed by the owners. So you better have, you better get the money up front. And uh, that's a tumbler. And you know who told me that? John McLaughlin said, Matthews, you're a tumbler. Well, it's uh, nice to have you. Uh, I'm Jewish, Chris. So it's nice to have you in the Fay. I could have been a Jew, I've, couldn't you? There's I've a little a bit Jew. of Jewish in all one of us, my, particularly one of, my editors, one of my editors said that inside I am, so I, I take that. Well, I think the Irish and the Jews have a lot in common. They um, do. Uh, Chris, they do. the other guy who comes up a lot in, in your book, and I, I was thinking about you as well last week, um, I did a show about Steinbeck, a biography, is Hemingway. Yeah. What's, what, what, why is Hemingway alongside Winston Churchill your big hero? Not so much, although he does wonderful lines. I'm an, I'm, I don't know, are you an underliner? I'm an underliner. No yeah, writer, underliner, everything. I can't read a book without a pen. And I'm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm well, I, look at this book. It's already got notes all over it. Thank you, sir. Oh, my God. I love it. And that's one of my rules of writing, by the way. Come up with ideas and put little circles around them uh, to keep them separate. Uh, I think it's the, uh, from the beginning, it's like Tom Sawyer in the whitewashing of the fence, as I said, because in the book, because like, how did he get us to do what he did? Like he had to get somebody to help him whitewash the fence. So he said, this is the coolest thing he can do. And he convinced people that what he did was going to Africa, going to bullfights, going, yeah. to, going to Paris in the twenties, what are go, going to Key West or going to Ketchum, Idaho, wherever he went, he sort of dispensed this rule. This is cool. This is what you want to do. I don't know how he did it, uh, but he also said, this is cool to write. Writing isn't, you know, Emily Dickinson. This is what guys do. And uh, how did he do it? He looked right, maybe. I don't know what it was. He, he, sw he swagger, you know, he had, I don't know what, he, he, he gave us some bad advice, like drinking. Uh, but, um, and he ended up badly. He ended up uh, with real you know, emotional and mental problems. He, commit, he shot himself and, and seemed to have sort of been working up toward it for a while. He put the shotgun in his mouth and tasted. I mean, things like that you read about uh, until he finally did it. Um, I just think when I, I love reading about him. I love reading about his life. Uh, going off uh, to the Italian front in World War I, 
and getting his uniform on and driving that truck. All we did was out handing out candy, basically, to the soldiers. And yet we think of him as this heroic figure. I think it's the arc of the hero, like Churchill. The arc of the hero, to me, has to include physical courage proven in youth. I so agree. it's Jack Kennedy coming out of the Bay of Pigs, not the Bay of Pigs, uh, the, the uh, PT-109, where he really did save his crew. He swam for four hours carrying Pappy McMahon on his back, and he had a bad back, Jack. And, uh, and, and Churchill escaping the Boers. And I, when I was in Africa, I had a bathroom in Swaziland. It was very popular to have a bathroom in Swaziland because the, most of the other volunteers did. I happen. can imagine, yeah. So we had a map on the wall of, of Southern Africa, and I, could always, I always mentally plotted Churchill's escape from the Boers from Pretoria to Portuguese East to, to Mozambique right across the top of Swaziland on that train. So I was thinking about this rite of passage and those three guys have it in common, Hemingway, Churchill and, uh, and Jack Kennedy. I think yeah, the arc of the hero includes youthful courage followed by, often in combat, followed by a life of importance and a vision that goes with it. And then some sort of ability to capture their role and to see their role like Churchill especially did or Hemingway. Kennedy didn't get to do that. Um, yeah, that's my, those are my heroes. Chris, it's a wonderful book about your life. Um, any regrets? Anything that you wish you'd done or that you hadn't done? Well, in 19, I keep doing this, I'm getting so old. In 2010, I took uh, seriously the idea of running for the Senate in Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, you talk about that and in the I, book. And I took a lot of, I wanted to do it. I didn't feel I had the right a campaign manager. I think I would have jumped if I had a campaign manager. Who, who, who he or she have told me how we're going to do it. I had had the backing of the, uh, the Philadelphia boss, the political boss. I had the backing of the former governor. I had the backing of the mayor of Scranton. I had a lot of personal backing face to face. I'm with you. Uh, I had the backing of Jack Murtha from Western Pennsylvania, one of my real good friends in the Congress. Um, I had a lot of that. Uh, I could have raised the money, but I don't know. I, I chickened out because of a couple of reasons, but I didn't want to. Uh, I'm, I've been thinking the last few days, I'm sort of glad I'm not there. I'm not as far left as the Democratic Party is heading. A little bit like Churchill, when you go to the socialist, Ed, I'm you lost me, I'm off that train. Well, you've had your run-ins with Bernie Sanders, but don't, don't the Dems need a guy like you to tell the truth? Well, I disagree with Bernie, I disagree with his point of view. The Cold War was real. Don't tell me how great life is in Russia or life is in Maduro's uh, Venezuela or Ortega's uh, uh, whatever, uh, Nicaragua. Don't tell me how great these guys are. They're, 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 I was just in Vietnam, not Vietnam, I've been in a lot. I was just in Cuba. It's awful. It's just as bad as you think. It's a beautiful old country. It's a beautiful capital, but my God, communism is awful. There's no freedom. And what about the are, new crowd in DC, the AOCs of the world? Are they as bad as Bernie? Or as unrealistic, as well, idealistic? they represent their districts uh, as much as as much as Manchin does West Virginia. They, I mean, if you can get the white people of West Virginia to agree to the people from Queens, you've got something, <laughs> you got a hell of a political party. And I'm not, we'll see if we have one, but the Democrats can, can stretch from white grievance uh, to uh, aspiration of the, of the uh, immigrants. I mean, she's not an immigrant technically, she's from Puerto Rico, but I mean, her family is, but I think there is a lot of aspiration. I've never seen so many relative newcomers to our country running for office in my life. There's so much going on. A lot so you're of you're generally optimistic. And you know, the, the, the regret about not running for office in 2010 is, is not that big a deal. So generally you feel your life 
has been well spent. Yeah, I've got uh, a wonderful family. I've got a wonderful wife. I mean, I'm not a cornball about it, but I lucked out. I just lucked out with Kathy. And uh, she was party chairman in, in Maryland a few years ago, Democratic chairman. She was a top executive at Marriott. Before that, she was the anchor woman here in Washington for 15 years. And our kids are trying to make it a movie business. My daughter's trying to make it a company she's formed with her new husband. We just had a marriage and uh, a wedding in, in Valley to Hinch, Ireland. We're Congratulations. So thank you. And uh, so uh, I'm going to write another book. And You're going to write another book. Well, you, you dedicate the book to your viewers um, of Hardball. Do you consider them, in a sense, part of your family? Well, I was on television for 26 years. Yeah. When I walk down the street, not everywhere, but inevitably it happens. Somebody about my age comes up to me and they say something warm and to me affectionate. I miss you. It's about missing my company, their company, my company, being together for an hour a night. It's very personal. And I just say something like, well, me too. And I don't mean it. Yes, sarcastically, I just say, me too, I miss you. And I miss that, that company. Because after a while you realize you are company. You're not somebody that informs necessarily, although you try to inform every night and you let people know where you stand. But what you really are, you're keeping time with people. You're with them. They're yeah, you become a piece, you, you become a figure in, um, in the living room. You're their friend. And not always their friend, perhaps they're, they're enemies they sometimes, but you're there. They yell at me too, but especially in this country, which is so segregated still, um, socially, socially, not at work so much anymore, but socially, people, African-American guys or women that come up to you as if they really know you and you go, my God, this is a treasure. I'm able to be intimate, soul to soul with people that I normally, if I were just another white guy, wouldn't be able to do it. It's this job I have, this position that I can actually talk to them in their living room or the kitchen. And we're talking about our country together. Yeah, I know my mother-in-law, Mary Knight, misses you, Chris. Well, thank you. Say hi. You know, I, I loved it. I guess I was old hat because I was sort of uh, an unhyphenated Democrat. I was just a, you know, Joe Biden, maybe. Is there a young Chris Matthews out there? Do you see anyone on TV who reminds you? I, I, I think people in our business in journalism, I think I look at Robert Costa, who just co-authored the book with uh, with Bob Woodward. Yeah. He's, great young He's not guy. really young, is he, though? Well, compared to me, <laughs> I'm 70, I'm 76. Right. So you're not, you should say I'm surprised, you know, but I am 76. And um, yeah, these guys in their thirties are less than half my age. You know, I just, uh, I think of the, I think I look at some people on TV. I think they're like me. Uh, Abby Phillips on CNN's really, really Yeah, strong. she's very good. Yeah, she's and, I, good. and I notice that people are quieter that just say things where they know what they're talking about. Like, like her, I think Yamish, Yamish is fabulous. Yamish is excellent. And I think about, uh, on our network, I look at- What about Tapper and the CNN crowd? I'll just stick to my crowd, okay? Yeah. And the, uh, and the- I'm like a hairdresser. Don't go to the other hairdresser. Go right. to and, and what about the other, yeah, the, the, the other guys on the left on MSNBC? Uh, let me see who I, I don't, I think the call is a star. Yeah. It's perfect for television. I'm a friend of Brian's. Uh, I, I think Joy has a lot of power. Uh, nice people, the ones I like. I got to tell personally, R Rachel and 
and uh, Chris Hazer, very nice people. Yeah, Rachel and Chris are the big stars, though, aren't they? Well, they are now. They are, and, and they're going to have a big run. Uh, I like Joe Joe Scarborough and Mika. I think if yeah. I were getting up in the morning, I have no doubt what I'd watch. I watched them. I was watching them this morning. I thought the people in Fox and Friends were giddy with the election results. I thought they acted like they just won the World Series this morning, almost. Yeah. And that's the right, but that's a point of view, which I don't share. I, I think they're... Uh, I think they're idiotic in many ways on Fox. But finally, Chris. They know, how, they know how bad Trump is. They're not the QAnon people. The people like Tucker are not idiots, not at all. They are just- Could Tucker run though? Is he a real political figure, do you think? What is it 20 minutes ago we're talking about Trump? I mean, yeah, yeah, he could. I, I think uh, it'd be work for him because you have to get out and get it organized. You have to be an entrepreneur. You mean he's lazy? Doesn't like no, work? No, an entrepreneur is, you know, business. Starting a national campaign or a state campaign involves an enterprise. You have to put it together. Unless you're lucky and you have people that do it for you. But like Reagan, Ronald Reagan probably got some help. But usually you got to start it from scratch. And it's, you know, a campaign starts with one of my favorite conversations here. You walk into a storefront that nobody else wants because they get it cheap. And it's got a rug that's all rat eaten and everything. And in the corner of the room is a little wire coming out of the floor on the, on the sidewall. And there's some, a, a piece of car, a cardboard carton of old coffee cups that are empty. And that's your campaign. That's it. smells it. bad, right? And it smells because it's a ratty office nobody else wants. That's why you got it. That's why it's available. And you can afford it. And that's it. You got to start with it. You got to start making phone calls. You got to start networking. You got to call people who went to school. Bill Clinton started his campaign for Congress the first time with a box of matchbooks, a big box of them, because all his life, he was always a, a game fellow. He, every time he met somebody in a bar, he would write down their name on the matchbook and their phone number or whatever. And then he would put it in this big box. And when he had to run for Congress in 1974, <laughs> he dumped the box. And that was his list of people he called for fun for money. That's what so you have. Finally, Chris, um, Joe Biden was just in Glasgow reminding the world that America is back. Your book is called This Country. Is America back or did it even ever go away? This country, as you know, has strengths, which are also its weaknesses. The strength is our cowboy attitude. You know, we just want to live in our own house. We don't want to live in an apartment unless we have to. We want, we want to go in our own car. We don't want to take the subway. We don't. We don't want to go to a public park. We want to have a lawn of our own. We want to have a life that we see as, as uh, independent. And uh, we, you know, Adlai Stevenson said it, it was a, it's an, I quote it in the book somewhere. It's an inner life of freedom. It's something you feel free. You know what the feeling is. I am free. And of course, if you're married, you got to compromise and negotiate a lot. But you're free and you chose your spouse freely. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't appointed. You did, your career, you basically built for yourself if you could, or your job. There's a lot of freedom here. And uh, I, I, think, I think that's what our country's got strength for. And I think it's the ability of, of uh, that wonderful scene in, in Yanks, uh, John Schlesinger's book, movie, where this young guy, said, I'm going home to start motels. These are new things. They're like hotels, but they're along the road. And I'm going to start that and make it. And the British guy says, I'm just going to get the factory job my dad's got. And they go, wait a minute. And the girl falls, uh, Lisa Eichhorn, I've never seen her since, but she just completely falls for the yank. And, and, uh, and I think that's what we are, yanks. 
We're do, we can do this thing. And I, it's a positive thing about uh, individuals. That's why we like Churchill. I mean, he's a Brit, but he's half American. We had an American mother. Well, I don't know about America, but Chris Matthews is certainly back. This country, wonderful read. It's like being back on Hardball, Chris. I'm speaking on behalf of your whole audience. We miss you. We want you back. The book's great. And we'll talk again. I'd love to have you back on the show because there's so much more that we haven't talked about. Thank you so much. Andrew, it's an honor. Thank you.